When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any other films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. My name's Gary Smart. I am the uh, producer of Pennywise The Story of It, also one of the co-directors and founders of Court Screens UK, uh, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Uh, my name is John Campo-Piano, and I'm an archivist and film producer and co-writer, co-director of Pennywise, The Story of It, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc. Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, these next guests were involved with a very popular documentary that's out and about right now. And as of this morning, because for some odd reason, my parents want me to know how to read and write, 
saw some good news about the documentary. However, this doc has been loved by fans because it's from the start of a very well-received franchise. It started off as a miniseries, which is where they focused on. The documentary, like I said, is focusing on it from 1990, the miniseries that was based upon the Stephen King novel. Not shedding any new news here with this, but it obviously features the notorious villain Pennywise. But we'll get into the doc and all. I believe it's called Pennywise, the story of it, because I didn't put it down in writing. But let's go <laughs> on. Yeah. Damn, I got it. No. How about that? I actually did some research. No, no, I'm kidding, guys. No, but uh, let's welcome John Camp Piano and Gary Smart. So, gentlemen, how are we doing? Yeah, we're just uh, we we are extremely happy to be here, but extremely busy. So, but we love talking about this project. You know, we're really proud of it. Uh, all of the team. Well, so. obviously, it came out. I guess about a month or two ago at this point. And I want to go back real quick to the good news that I had just referenced during the introduction, long-winded, that Pennywise, the story of it, is landed a UK deal for home entertainment, which will make it available to stream in the UK starting October 3rd, followed by DVD and Blu-ray release, try this in English, on October Mm -hmm. 24th. So let's start there with the good news of that for streaming and such, because Gary, I know you are over in the UK. So what's this positive news mean for you guys? I mean, it's great news for us. I mean, we, uh, we've been negotiating a deal for quite some time for the UK, but we, uh, the press release came out this morning or yesterday, probably at your time. Uh, and we didn't know it was coming out of the press release. So we were like, we we're getting all these messages from people going, oh, great news. I'm going, what are you talking about? Great news. And I had a friend message me going, I've seen it on Fangoria. I'm going, what are you talking about, Fangoria? And it's like, this article had come out, this press release had been done. So for us, it's brilliant. You know, as, you know it, it's difficult as a UK company because obviously, you know, the franchise is huge across the world, but obviously it's an American film and, you know, and it was filmed obviously in Canada, but it's American money, obviously American cast, obviously apart from obviously Tim curry so it obviously would naturally have its first release in, in the u.s through Screenbox, uh and you know i've got friends over here who want to watch it and family who just can't so to have it released over here as well uh, is really great for us and you know it's, that's two territories we've hit now uh and then you know we've got to hit europe and the rest of the world so it's, it's brilliant news and i know john again is really chuffed about it especially john's a physical release kind of guy aren't you john yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm excited. I mean, you know, when when Cinedyne announced Screenbox, you know, it got great feedback, but also a lot of people in the UK and Canada. Obviously, it's a Canadian. You know, it was shot in Canada, so we want to get that territory squared away hopefully soon. But there were a lot of people in the UK that were asking to see it. So the fact that it's coming soon, it's coming on physical media and streaming, and and just before Halloween, I think is fantastic. So, well, that is definitely awesome news. I figured it'd be only appropriate to mention it for those who are in the UK and hear this. It is coming your way officially. Mm-hmm. officially. So I, yes. Finally. finally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I actually just went back early this afternoon because it's about 
3.07 my time on the East Coast. And I went and kind of watched it again just to make sure I didn't mess nothing because I'm always ADHD doing several different things, booking several different episodes, all that fun stuff. So I wanted to make sure I had a majority of what I wanted to talk about with this documentary. But first and foremost, I got to ask, and I'm not looking to spoil the whole thing and such, but you start the documentary off with old footage of Stephen King at giving a speech or a panel or such. Where is that footage from? John? So that that was from... Uh, a lecture that King gave at the University of Maine, I think it was, in the early 80s. So I think the novel came out in 86, and I I think it was 82 or 83 around there that he gave that talk. So that's that's where that footage came from. Yeah, I definitely thought that was kind of cool that you had something of that nature in terms of trying to introduce what you guys did with this documentary now obvious the obvious question since we're talking mr king is did you guys try to reach out to him at all to be a part of this yeah i mean i'll start and obviously john will finish because john he's kind of like the, the we, we give john a list of names and john goes and finds these people for us uh but yeah obviously king's always going to be important to, to to a documentary like this uh especially obviously with the origins of the actual, obviously the, the story, it's really important. And I think when we, you look back now, retrospectively, you look at the documentary, I think King would have been important, obviously at the start, and obviously important about the character of Pennywise, but then probably would have moved on to Tommy Lee Wallace's story then, and obviously the, the makers of the actual TV series. But we did try. We always try and get people, and unfortunately, there's always people that just can't get, you can't get hold of for various reasons. And I know John obviously was engaging with with Stephen King, uh, his people, because he already tried him obviously in his previous documentary as well. Yeah, I'm I'm over two, I guess, <laughs> when yeah. it comes to King. Um, yeah, we tried, and I think you know, like Gary said, I mean, King wasn't directly involved with the miniseries, and so as we started getting interviews, and it didn't feel as essential to have him. And and there's this great archive. There's a lot of archive, you know, of him interviews and such that he's given in the past that we were able to source in different ways. So I think his voice is in there. Um, and so I, you know, I'm happy with that, but yeah, we tried to get King. It didn't work out. And so we moved on pretty much. Yeah. We, we just done it on our, on our robo doc documentary where it's actually taken us six years to get Peter Weller to agree to do the documentary. You know, we'd already interviewed a hundred people and was waiting on Weller. And I think we felt, you know, we'd moved in the direction where we didn't need, we didn't, believe we needed him and then when we got him it was really important we just couldn't commit any more time i think i'm i'm trying to to persuade you know stephen king uh to do me so we made a decision two or three years ago that we had to basically move on with the project because i think we'd still be doing it now if, if to be honest and it would have annoyed more people for the delays but i i think as john said i think his voice is in there his presence is felt but i keep on saying over and over again it's not in any way uh disrespecting obviously Stephen King's obviously work because he created this this character but I really think the TV series is is Larry Cohen and Tommy Lee Wallace's baby really and obviously then you get Jim Green and, and, and Mark and obviously Bart Nixon and obviously then of course Tim 
so we've really concentrated on those people telling their story and how they created this character because the iconic obviously character we all love stemmed from the work these guys created really and, and the look of the character well that would lead to i guess my next question because in the documentary you tell the story of the full miniseries from start to finish within a two-hour period that the documentary is so and it's i would think it's the same way as putting together a movie or the miniseries because obviously it went on to have two films in the past several years and such but it all stems from a book that stephen king wrote yeah so when you uh would be deciding to say okay we're going to do a documentary on this and there is just so much material you had the book you had the miniseries you had the two movies you have these different moving pieces to being part of it whether it be you know like you said tommy wallace and you had bye gore say give his blessing to be a part of it and we're going to do this then you initially ask they asked George Romero and, you know, I mean, you got all these yeah. different moving, moving pieces of the story. So when you say, all right, we're going to do a documentary on a mini series, how do you decide, all right, this is the direction we're going to go for the documentary. And yeah, just saying, okay, we need to grab this piece, this piece, yeah. reference this, whatnot. I think we, we said from day one we didn't want to touch the remakes because at the time of filming, obviously the remakes have been announced. I think they even released an image of, of the new Pennywise, uh, but it wasn't really much. I think it was coming out a few months after, wasn't it? I think, John, like when we first started. Yeah, we, yeah we were like in Vancouver in July and August, and, and then I think it, it was out that September. I mean, it was right after. Yeah, but we made a conscious decision. Obviously, our documentary would be about, obviously, celebrating the original uh, and we've done it on all of our projects, but we've not ever touched upon remakes because I think you can go in different territory and you start getting very confusing. The documentary comes longer, you've got to engage more people. And obviously no one could really give opinion on the film itself because nobody had seen it. So, you know, uh, it would have been unfair, obviously, on the people involved in that. But when it comes to the doc, I mean, we, we kind of plan the doc in advance in terms of a story narrative. And the interesting thing about this project, and again, I know John, John will, will chip in, is that the original plan of this doc and correct me if I'm wrong, John, was that we didn't want to do a traditional making of. We wanted to do a um, documentary about the impact that the character of Pennywise had had uh, on, you know, on, on the clown culture, chlorophobia, how this character became iconic. And obviously at the time, a few years before, there was all these clown sightings and scary clown sightings in, 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 in the States. But what happens is when you sit down with people, they tell their stories that, it evolves into becoming you know, a making of, but you know, John works really hard on creating a narrative structure in the interview questions to ensure that when we go to the editing stage, we've got literally a, a story there. And the last thing I'll say before passing over to John is that when we came to the editing, we had about 60 hours of footage. You know, and again, most of that 60 hours obviously is kind of just, you know, it, it isn't really worth obviously you know, listening to because there's people bantering and chatting and people are being repetitive about other stories so that's the most difficult element which obviously we face um john am i correct or am i making it all up yeah yeah no i think <laughs> I, no you're spot on gee i think um 
Yeah, when when it came to you know including other things like Romero's involvement or the book, I think when we got into the edit, we always tried to make sure that it stayed tethered to the miniseries in some way. So if we're talking about the book, we're talking about the book in the context of what they wanted to keep in the miniseries and what wasn't going to fit or make sense or be appropriate for TV at that time. So um, we would go down these different avenues. Um, but I think we always, it was always in the context of the miniseries and um, with the exception, obviously, of sort of the history of clowns um, and people's personal connections or history with them. Gary and I championed that and Chris did too, of including that because it seems like it would be interesting. And it touches on what Gary was saying, that we didn't want it to just be a straight making of. I mean, it is a making of, but we also go down these different side stories that I think are interesting that, you know, me as taking my producer hat off and putting my viewer hat on, I was like, yeah, I want to hear Tim Curry talk about his earliest memory of clowns and seeing them in England. I mean, I think that's just interesting and maybe something that people wouldn't expect to, uh, to get. So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, we stayed focused on the miniseries. Like Gary said, we didn't want to talk about the remake. I think we asked a few people about their thoughts. We did. Yeah. Um, but we felt, and I felt strongly too, that that to have people sort of pontificating about what the remakes were going to mean, I felt would date the film instantly because now it's come out in 2022 and people would be talking about a film that has since come out but hadn't. And I think yeah. it would have dated it would have dated the doc in a way that we wouldn't have helped it very much. So we just avoided the the remakes completely. And I think as John said, you know. I, one of my favorite parts of the documentary, I think all three of us, and well, actually including Adam and, and Mikey as well, uh, is the clown section because you can't talk about Tim Curry and Pennywise without talking about the impact that character has had on people's perception of clowns. It really has, you know, when people see that image of Pennywise, they get, you know, some people are frightened by it still to this day, and people some who haven't even watched the miniseries know that clown's face you know it's so iconic so i think that was really important for us to, to kind of go down that little road a little bit and start looking at obviously the fear of clowns and linking to like john wayne gacy kind of like you know f- you know uh, hysteria of the, the the you know the 80s or the late 70s uh, so I, I i'm really proud of that section and you know i think again i know john john championed that and i think i know i was reluctant i put my hands up when we had the clown expert I remember thinking, you know, this is not what we need for a documentary about, you know, a miniseries. And John wanted that that chap involved. And he was brilliant. And I think he gave a fantastic interview. And I think having somebody who is a clown and know, you know, and has built a career around that, but also knowing the impact that Pennywise has had on the negativity of clowns was just gold for us. And I think it really kind of like makes the documentary a little bit more of a level a bit more kind of a, a, a classy, if I want to say the word, as opposed to a, you know, a bonus feature on a Blu-ray. It's, you know, it's made a documentary something really a little bit more than it should be. And again, having Tim talk about his experiences as a clown was as a kid, Norman, uh, you know, the makeup guy talking about his experiences and seeing the picture. It's just brilliant. It really is. Well, speaking of that, I might as well go ahead and ask here, do you guys have a fear of clowns? And also, do you remember the first time you came across this document, or not the documentary, you came across the miniseries? I, I'm not scared of clowns, you know. I, I 
I, I've loved horror from a very early age. You probably see from behind me, whatnot, you know, in this room. I just love horror. And I was, I was allowed to watch horror films when I was like, you know, three or four. Um, so oh, so you're fucked up like me then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it works what we do, you know. It's having a love for the franchise. And obviously love for the genre, sorry. Uh, but yeah, so I, I never got scared of him. I, I love the look of Pennywise, I really do. I think he looks amazing. I think, you know, that kind of contrast in these colours and that saturated kind of look of him is brilliant. But I first saw it, and I, you know, I'm 40 this year, so I remember it airing on Sky Television. Now, over here, we have, a, a, you know, our cable is called Sky Television, and there was a channel called Sky One, and it aired over those two nights. And I would have been, what, eight or nine when that came out? I vividly remember watching it and loving it. And then it came out on VHS in the double box set about uh, probably a year later. Because my nan passed away in 92. She bought it me. So it would have been about 91, it would have been. And I remember my mum and dad had gone away for a weekend to, to Sheffield somewhere in the UK. And I was staying with my nan. She took me into town, into, into the city centre. And I had a treat. And the treat was her buying me this double VHS of, of, <laughs> of Pennywise. That was my treat because I was good the weekend. Um and again, that shows my upbringing. That my nan was buying me that kind of like thing at the age of you know eight or nine or ten, whatever it would have been. And uh, I just loved it, you know. And, and uh, I always have, and I love Tim Curry. I mean, who doesn't love Tim Curry? So having Tim Curry in a film about a clown, which is iconic, uh, and a connection for me, obviously, with my nan passing away in '92, it kind of has a very special place in my heart, um, Pennywise, because one of the last memories probably I have of my nan, to be honest. But John was an absolute mm. freak for Pennywise when he was a kid, weren't you, John? Yeah, kind of. Um, and oh I God. didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't. Know, I didn't know that story about your. Uh, oh, really? Your Nanji. That's really sweet. Um, I mean, uh, no, I'm not afraid of clowns either. My parents took me to the circus and all kinds of stuff when I was a kid, and I've got photos of me with clowns, and and I don't. I don't remember ever being scared of them. Um, the miniseries. So I, I grew up. I was an only child, and so my my horror film diet was thanks to the older siblings of friends of mine in the neighborhood that would rent mm. stuff and show us stuff too young. And, um, that was my, that was my exposure to, to the miniseries, um, rented same here, two tapes set. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's how I first saw it. But there's photographs of John on his Facebook, Instagram, where he's had a, a, a baseball cap made in the local mall with... Oh, that came later. There. Yeah, yeah, but he's, yeah, it wasn't much later, was it? <laughs> and he's got a wall behind him full of penny... I mean, how he got those pictures back in the 90s, I have no idea. He must be ripping Fangoria magazines to pieces. So I think oh, John, there were, John, there were websites. Yeah. I remember there were there were websites. You know, you'd sit really? there and you'd, you'd wait 15 minutes for them to uh, load. Like when you were watching your porn as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... Um, and I remember my mom getting so pissed. Like I, I would spent so much, uh, or they spent so much money on those like uh, printer cartridges. You know, like <laughs> you, you wouldn't be able to print many things. And mom would come home and want to print something that was actually important. And she'd be like, "Where's the fuck? If the printer's empty again?" And she'd come by my bedroom door. <laughs> There'd be pictures of Jason and Tim Curry and stuff. Um, yeah, as I got a little older, I, I really fell in love with it. And um, uh, my friends and I would watch it. And um, yeah. That came later. And I'm sure we'll come into it later on, but that's why we really engaged with John on it because we knew John was a fan. You know, we were fans, but we knew it's always good to have somebody on the team who's kind of, I don't want to use the word hardcore fan, but who really knows the film and obviously has a, has a real love for that film. That way then you can have a nice balance because sometimes, you know, you can go into something we don't know too much about it and actually have somebody who knows a lot is brilliant, but also we can 
counteract with John as well, you know, and it's happened with me on my projects where sometimes you be, you know, you're so invested in it, you need to have some other people going, actually, this works better. This, so I think the team dynamics worked really well because John was probably more of a fan even though we were fans and probably, you know, me and Chris, I mean, I don't think Chris had watched it until many, many years later, Chris. Chris was more of a Chainsaw Massacre, you know, Jason Voorhees mm. fan. And that's completely different to the tone of, of Stephen King's it. Um, it's very much a TV series, you know, it's got that vibe, hasn't it? I know there's some really scary moments, but so I think Chris kind of fell in love with the series when we were making the documentary, really, more than anything, I believe, John, that's probably true. I think he's got a more affection for it now than he had before. Yeah. So it, it's kind of yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's just um, it's nice to, it's nice to do things that you love, you know. And we we love these films and these franchises, so it was a be a perfect opportunity for us to work on it. Well, and Gary, don't beat me to the punch when I say this because we'll get to it in a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, of course, yeah. But you know, I grew up like John. Well, both of you, but. Like John referenced, I was corrupted in terms of said, in terms of being shown Nightmare on Elm Street from like two and a half, three years old. And then later on, as I, here, I'll show you, I can do it. I got the box set up there oh, of, uh, yeah. of the yeah. uh, Friday the 13th. I got a poster over here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, clear, I'm clearing out because we've been remodeling the house of a signed uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D poster by Dan Yeager, who's a friend of the show. And, you know, it's hilarious that, you know, so then I got into it and, you know what I mean? As you progress, as you get older and such. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's why I said respectfully, um, yeah, so you're fucked up like me. You know, from no, no, age. no. I, I said I've, I've been allowed to, I remember, you know, digressing a little bit now, I remember being in, I don't know what your year groups are like in your in your schools, but in our schools, you know, in in year one, you're about five years old. Mm -hmm. Kindergarten uh, I, here. Yeah, yeah. And I remember having, you know, bringing in to school uh, Freddy's Revenge on VHF, which I got <laughs> for Christmas. And I was borrowing to my friends in school. And I remember having a scrapbook of newspaper articles of Freddy Krueger at that early age, like in year one, year two. And, you know, it, and it was never a taboo subject in my house. Freddy Krueger wasn't stuff like you. And I, I kind of knew when I was little that, that it was pretend that, that the man in makeup and I was desperate to know yeah. who was behind that makeup. And I remember my nan kind of like telling me she'd watched a, 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 a morning TV show and Robert England was being interviewed on it. And I was going, what's he look like? And she's going, oh, you know, he looks, he's got so-and-so hair. And I was obsessed with behind the scenes. So, I think we're fucked up, but I, I'm in a way that I always knew it was pretend, so it never scared me. It, it intrigued me, you know. And you're on about obviously your collection there. When we were kids, you couldn't get anything. You couldn't get, you know, figures and, and posters and T-shirts. I mean, kids today, when they're brought up on horror, I mean, they're so blessed with what they can buy. Uh, I would have dreamed mm. of having a proper Freddy Krueger mask, you know. You couldn't get them in the UK, particularly you couldn't yeah. get them over here. But you know, I think the front horror now has found a real nice place now in in in, in like, you know in people's kind of lives, and the, it's no longer the community is no longer frowned upon. It's celebrated, and that works really well for people like me and John and Chris and Adam yeah. because we can celebrate this now professionally uh, as you know our love for these franchises. 
and, and we're adults I, making making money and can afford this shit. Whereas yeah, yeah, my, yeah. Parents, my my parents wouldn't have bought me half the stuff that I would have wanted. No. Probably, so. <laughs> yeah, because like when I get done with the the house stuff, I'm gonna have my video cabinet back in this room with all the medium VHS and DVD oh, and yeah, such. Yeah, so yeah. you know, it's stuff will be back in this room and not be yeah. as empty. But obviously, with this stock. What would you say the biggest surprise is that you learned in talking to everybody involved? Mine's a weird one, really, because obviously, you know, I know I'm always intrigued in casting. I'm always intrigued what could have been. And no one's ever going to replace Tim Curry ever. But when we found out that, you know, the likes of Roddy McDowell, who I love and adore Roddy McDowell from Fright Night, uh, was potentially going to be cast, you know, his name was kind of like mentioned, obviously, in the casting kind of processes that would have been a completely different kind of pennywise but then the other one was like malcolm mcdowell it's like imagine mm. malcolm mcdowell playing pennywise so it, and all what we learned we learned so much those are kind of things like that because i love malcolm mcdowell i love Roddy mcdowell and i love tim curry so that was kind of the most interesting thing for me um and getting that kind of cemented really and also maybe you know the fact that the producers wanted uh Pennywise to be more grotesque and wanted him to be more kind of like you know horrific. Where it was Tim that said, No, you know, you're going to cast me, you cast me for my face, not to put me in makeup, make me, you know, because he'd done that on Legend. So I think that was interesting how the power that Tim had actually. Uh, you know, this is 1990, Tim had been around obviously because you know for a few years in, in terms of, 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 of movies, but he still had that power where he'd go, No, no, this is wrong, and actually, they when they listened to him and he came out that first day in the makeup, they knew straight away he was the best person to hire. So that's my favorite little stories. And I'm sure there's so many more. I can't just can't remember. Yeah. You hired him for him, you know? Yeah. 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 There's so, there's so many stories. I mean, mine is similar to to Gary's that, you know, the, the George Romero potential for the miniseries um, and the fact that they envisioned it as this like eight part epic where nowadays we don't even think twice about seeing something that's that long right. back then that would have been so unusual. And, and also, I guess just for me personally, when we learned that it was kind of funny because uh, I did a documentary about pet cemetery and George Romero was originally slated to direct that. And then that fell through because he signed on for monkey shines. And so it's been this kind of strange, like, Oh, another, another project that Romero came very close to that, that ultimately fell through. Um, so yeah, it kind of it sort of dovetails on what Gary is saying. The sort of what could have been for the miniseries um, was really fun to to hear about. Well, that when I think about it, and obviously George Romero's a legend within the entertainment industry and the horror genre. But how much different would it have? Obviously, it would have became an eight part uh, project, like you said. Uh, the length would have been different, but. How different do you think this miniseries would have been if he had continued on and actually saw it to completion? I, I personally don't think it would have been much different in terms of the restraints they had because of the network. You know, he couldn't have done a full gore. He wouldn't have been allowed to, you know, 89, 90. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it was now, it would have been Game of Thrones, like Larry Cohen said it would have been gore galore. But I don't think, I think, you know, people can wish what maybe George Muir would have done, but he would have had the same restrictions Tommy Lee Wallace would have had. He would have had the network saying no to certain things, you know, the certain parts of the book, which, you know, 
could have been there, the orgy scene and there's a very kind of like stuff about you know Henry Bowers and the kind of gay undertones of his his friends that wouldn't have been in it because it wouldn't have allowed it to be in it you know so yeah. I, don't, I don't think it would have been much different I mean tonally maybe slightly maybe uh, but uh, it's one of those isn't it you know we all could say what if um, you know what if so and so would have played that what if David Warner would allegedly have played Freddy Krueger would he say on for seven or eight films probably not um, I think they're nice stories you know and John's very John likes those kind of stories don't you John like the what ifs you know particularly your other projects but I don't think it would be personally I don't think it would be much different I'm not sure what you think John yeah I don't know I haven't thought about it too much in a, in a while but yeah I don't know how different it would have been I mean I, I do think as a filmmaker and I think this comes across in his interview like Tommy Lee Wallace has sort of like a I don't even know how to describe it. He sort of has like a softness to him or he's like kind of like a sentimentality that I think he maybe brought certain things out from the, especially the kid characters that I, I, I wonder if Romero would have spent as much time focusing on. I could be completely wrong. This is all speculation, but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like Gary said, it, just the restraints of the era and network television, he would have only been able to do so much, you know, and as it is, they pushed it pretty far even without Romero. And yeah. that was going to be my other question. And obviously, like Gary mentioned there, there was a reference in the documentary by one of the writers who was transcribing Larry in terms of it probably would have been like Game of Thrones. Yeah. If it were today's standards. I think so, if, it said, if it said, you look at the look at the remake, you know, and the gore in that and the CGI in that. Yeah. And the tonal difference in the remake as well was very dark. It's very gloomy. I think, yeah, I think Larry's right. I think if, if, if they, the remake hadn't happened and the original hadn't happened, and they said, you know, we're going to adapt Stephen King's book in 2022, it would be galore. I think it would be so kind of like rich, maybe. But I think that, that takes away a little bit because I think what I like about the original TV series is it's kind of like 90s feel and 50s feel. It's got a very kind of, I don't know, it's kind of, you can tell it's TV, but it works for that story because it's very 1950s Americana, isn't it, with the series? And that's not just because it's set there, it's because of the, the way it's filmed, you know, and, and, and you know, there is, you look at TV movies of the day, they're very much like that, aren't they? They're very, like soap operas really, aren't they? And I think you get that feel from it, like a soap opera kind of feel to a degree, especially with yeah. the older cast. And that really complements the story. I think you lost that in the remake and you lose that kind of like, TV feel, soap opera feel, and you go a bit more kind of like real and dark. I think you lost that in the remake, but you had in the original massively. Mm -hmm. My, my, it's my couple of cents worth on that. And it's kind of like the way I'll compare it is, which will lead to my final questions, but like Nightmare on Elm Street 1984 to 2010 in terms of I like what they did with the original in the 84 all around where 2010 they I like the story but I maybe not so much the CGI and stuff like that because you could tell a darker story in 2010 than maybe and touch on certain topics that you might not have been able to in 84 I think, I think the weird thing about the hardest thing I think about remakes or retellings or reimaginings, you know, the new, new Harry's coming out in October. If, if Not Round Street hadn't been made in 84, 
and the 2010 version that came out fresh, would it have been perceived differently because it's not a remake? You have a comparison all the time. That's the problem. I think that's what happened with the, the, the remake or the reimagining, retelling of, of Pennywise and Stephen King's It, the, the 2017 and 2019 uh, films, was if we hadn't already had Tim, we hadn't already had the original gang, it wasn't set in the 50s, would it have been perceived better by the hardcore fans? And I think that's the problem. You're, you're always going to end up pissing people off and you're always in at people comparing, and that's the worst you're doing mm. is, is compare. I think the only successful remake, I think, really, is, apart from like Invasion of Body Snatchers and stuff like that, is probably um, the Dawn of Dead remake, because it goes so different and from the source material. And you look at the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, it's basically the same film. Some of the scenes are literally exactly the same scenes. They didn't do anything original in there. And I think that was an issue with that particular film. And I think that maybe the TV series for us would be... It remakes of us from that a little bit as well. You know, did we learn the mistakes from the spider? No, we didn't. You know, we in our documentary, which came out of which was filmed before it part two came out, we've got a cast and crew saying we should have had Tim's face on that spider. It should have been Tim. They did that in the remake. It just didn't work. It was this massive CGI version of Bill as, as a spider. You know, and it kind of like it's I, I think it's difficult, I think, because you can always going to compare with remakes and um mm-hmm. We, we kind of, you know, we have these rich kind of originals and um, we want to criticise and we want to dissect and we want to compare. And so, um, yeah, I'd be interested to see what, you know, what would have happened if it was fresh and the original never happened. So final question for John, because I'm yeah, going to break this up, is we were talking earlier because I wasn't Facebook stalking or anything like that, tongue in cheek. but you had a, another documentary out. So you want to plug that as well as we uh, wrap here? I'm uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I've got a new short doc that's out that uh, Screenbox and a dime just picked up. So it's streaming in the U S um, called snapper, the man eating turtle movie that never got made, which is about exactly what it sounds like. Um, hmm. uh, Don't make me filming. break into the George Carlin jokes about snapper. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, there were some filmmakers that I've met over the years uh, here in, in the New England area that uh, tried to make a, a, a version of Jaws with a snapping turtle back in the late 80s, early 90s and uh, built animatronic turtles and and made a trailer and really tried to get it get it funded. They shot it on 16 millimeter. And so anyway, this doc is about the story of those guys trying to put this together. And um, yeah, it's available now to stream in the, in the U.S. and hopefully in the U.K. soon. And we were talking about this earlier. When it comes to Gary, he is a busy, busy bee because they are also finalizing the Robert Ingram documentary, which I was telling John, we can have a whole big conversation with that as well when it comes out. So obviously the fans have been clamoring for that for a few years since it's been announced. COVID may have been a hiccup or two with things. Hmm. So I don't want to say what I know from our conversation and such, but where does it stand now and where are we looking at possibly releasing it? Okay. So um, John's actually heavily involved in this project. John's our okay. archive producer and obviously John's going to be working on the bonus features as well. John's been involved for a couple of years now on it. 
so we're working really close. John's going to have a really busy time in the next few weeks on this. So at the moment, uh, Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, Robert England's story, is with legal. So legal have got now doing a fair use assessment. Because obviously, we have to use footage from the films that Robert starred in, and we're covering the whole of Robert's career. We've got a nice big section on Nightmare on Elm Street and the impact that character had on Robert's career. The essence of the, of the documentary basically is this character actor's journey and then he hits the 1984 and becomes Freddy Krueger and how that character then shaped the rest of his career and is that character a blessing or a curse? That's what the story is about really, how, how it impacted him and moved his career in a different, different way maybe it would have gone without doing Nightmare on Elm Street. So... It's a very rich documentary. John's been heavily involved in terms of the narrative, looking it over with us, going through it over and over again, shaping it. It's now with legal. Uh, we are we have a number of people interested in distributing it. I think there's going to be an announcement very, very, very soon. Uh, we also are going to have an announcement on the premiere, which Robert will be involved with. That's going to be announced literally in the next, I reckon, next week that'll be announced. Um, and it's going to be available, you know, again, I don't know distribution dates yet, but it's it's done. You know, we're literally at the stage now of fair, of fair use. After that, it'll go to grading and, and, and sound mix. So we're really excited about this project because it, unlike our other projects like RoboDark, like uh, Pet Cemetery and Pennywise and Fright Night and Hellraiser, this is about a character, actor's career. And it's not one film. It's about, you know, I think it's, 30 films cover probably John isn't there in it, I think. Yeah, sounds right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're really excited about that. And Robert's been amazing. I'm a lifelong fan of Robert England, and to get to work with him closely on a project like this has been brilliant. Nancy's wife's involved. She's interviewed as well. Uh, and have they met on the set of 976 Evil? I think it's just a real treat because it, and Robert wanted to be not about Freddy Krueger. Freddy's important, and Robert knows that. Of course, he's important. But it's about the man behind the glove. And about the guy, you know, this character actor's journey. And I think it's a beautiful story, really, is. And, and, and Robert's a weird kind of person because, you know, you look at documentaries about Danny Treasure and about Kane Hodder, but, and there was lots of tragedy in these people's lives, you know, and how it shaped them. And, you know, Danny Treasure obviously was in prison and, and Kane Hodder was burnt, you know, and how his career developed because of that. Robert hasn't got anything like that, really. Robert's story is about, as I said, you know, repeating myself, he's about how one role can shape your whole entire life. And Robert is a rock star now, he genuinely is, you know, and because of that character and what he brought to it, which is essentially a child molester, you know, and how can you make a child molester a kid favorite character where kids are dressing up as him and buying action figures and plush dolls in their bed. It's an interesting kind of story, really. Um, so now, I, yeah, I, again, I mean, I don't know if John wants to chip in again with John, but I'm really, really excited about it. And I know, obviously, John is as well, hopefully. John. No, very excited. <laughs> I think Gary summed, Gary summed it up perfectly. I think it was it was refreshing to, to do a project, like Gary said, that wasn't about one film. It was about a career and a lot of, a lot of films and a lot of different films. I think fans are going to be surprised to see uh, some of the other work that Robert's done throughout his career that is very much not in the horror genre. So I think it'll be really refreshing. And it was uh, in doing a different film like that, it presented different challenges. And I think with each one of these things, we get better at it, learn a lot. And um, so, yeah, just now we're excited for people to see it. So the one, the one thing we avoided on this one, thank God, was green screen. <laughs> we we, we <laughs> yeah, shot yeah. Pennywise on green screen. And that in, in practice, in filming, it's great. But actually 
the process then of actually the editing yeah. process and the, and the post-production is massively impacted by green screen. You don't realize how bad it is. It has to be perfect. Um, so not having that worry <laughs> of yeah. literally just having and a 4K film. We shot 2K, didn't we, on Pennywise, which is 4K. More flexibility. And, and one thing I want to say about John, John obviously is an amazing archivist. So John has been heavily involved in, in sourcing uh, photographs and footage which never been seen before on Robert's other films. We got some not renowned street photographs which haven't even really included Never Sleep Again documentary. We've got footage from his other films, you know, some beautiful footage from Dead and Buried, some eight millimeter film which never been seen by anyone. Um, so I think you know it's really rich with documentaries on on footage and archive and and you know re and we I think we had about three hundred photographs off Robert. From his you know, his life, you know, as a baby, little Robert, you know, Freddy Krueger was a baby and whatnot. So I, I'm really excited for it. I think we um really proud of it. I'm proud of Pennywise and, and the success it's had. Um, and obviously, you know, we, are, you know, are really kind of proud of what we do and, and the company's developing each time we do something. And I reference a joke that Howard Berger tells when it comes to Robert Englund and Freddy since you kind of referenced it. All right, kids, go put your Charles Manson uh, pajamas on. <laughs> it's true. It, it's so strange that essentially a child killer with a hint of molestation, you know, how that character can become a cartoon character. And I remember like a few years ago, it wasn't like Toys R Us were going to be banning, like oh, yeah. not on Arm Street. No, I think it was Hateful Eight Figures, wasn't it? They were going to ban. And then, because mm. of the racial undertones of that film, and then somebody went, "Hang on a minute, you're selling a child molester, a child killer action figure," and they tried to ban them then as well. I just think, you know, it's amazing how that character. I know, and of course, Michael Myers is an icon, and so is Candyman, and so is Jason. But Robert's Freddy Krueger was on another level, and that's because of Robert. There's no question about that. Hence, why the remake kind of fell flat. And as much as you know, the actor that did an amazing job in the remake, you're not whilst Robert's still alive, he's Freddy Krueger. And yeah. I would put money on it, but he will be Freddy Krueger again. He says he won't be. I think he will be. I think uh, if Jason Blum gets hold of the franchise, which he wants. Yeah. Can, it's... Be, there'll be a version of Freddy, which is Robert's version, like we did maybe Candyman. There'll be something there. Robert will be involved. He's got to be. He's still here. And he's fit as a fiddle. I mean, the guy's 70, 74, is he 75? Mm. The guy's fit as a fiddle. He's fitter than John. You know, so <laughs> I I re always respected him and Nancy from my interactions with him and respect what he says that, hey, I'm done. But like you said, it's one of those if the right thing came along and the right offer financially, story wise, you know, just a whole thing of it he might put the fedora on one more time. I think for Robert's story, I, I, you know, he does, I don't think he's going to the kind of person that, you know, speaking to him, obviously being close to him the last few years, I don't think it's even about the cash. I think it's about getting... No, but, yeah, the whole... No, I'm saying, no, I'm saying, yeah, I, I speak, you know, some people, some people are totally about the money and I think, you know, and, and, and fair play, you know, you're, you're an actor and that's your job, you know, you're going to get paid. And you got, yeah. I think Robert, even if, even if he was offered a lot of money, it have to be the right for the character. That's I what I'm saying. Kept, the whole picture, yeah, it has to yeah. be, it would have to be right for him to he, say. He, yeah. To he's, consider. So he's so invested in the fans. And I don't think he wants to upset the fans. I don't think he would do something 
I know he was conscious about doing the Goldbergs episode, but you know, it kind of worked really for what what it was. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just think he, I, I, if it was you said if all the the things came together correctly and you know, and it was a perfect storm, there's no reason why he would like, honestly it, consider it. You know, I yeah, think he would. I think he would. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, we'll have to have you guys back on for that. But the documentary these gentlemen were involved with it's just out. The documentary, which is out now, Pennywise, the story of it, it's available in the States. You can find it at your usual suspects. It's going to be coming out in the UK in October, like we said, for both streaming and on physical media. Gentlemen, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for having us, man. Appreciate it. brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift sets. But also let's not forget large orders for party favours by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansoapery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you.